Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. This month, we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they might overcome those roadblocks. Today, we get to hear from three wonderful writers and friends, Nancy Crusher, Henriette Lazaridis, and Ethan Gilsdorf. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And if you're live with us, everyone was holding up their coffee cups. I think mine is the biggest. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly the yellowest. Uh, you can see. And Ethan's is the deadliest in the group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Nancy Crochet is a former humor columnist whose comic debut novel, Graceland, was published in May 2023, was named a Best Book of the Summer by Parade, Woman's World, and Deep South Magazines. Uh, Henriette Lazaridis is the award-winning author of three novels, her debut, The Clover House, the Antarctic adventure, Terra Nova, and her newest book, which is coming out this April, and we're very excited about this. It's called Last Days in Quokka. She is the co-founder of Galliot Press and also runs the Kruna Writing Workshop in Northern Greece. And Ethan Gilsdorf is an essayist, critic, journalist, and the author of the memoir, Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks. And he teaches Grub Street's Essay Incubator Program, which is our brother incubator program at Grub Street. By the way, we are taking applications for the novel incubator right now. So if you're interested in that, um, check out the Grub Street program. And I look forward to seeing your applications. Okay, here we go. Um, by the way, you can still submit questions either in written or audio form. I love the audio form because then I get to hear your voices. I will identify you by your first name. Um, time is running short though. Like I, I have a feeling possibly by the end of the day, I will have all the questions that we can handle. So, so if you wanna get a question in, um, please try that. Um, I've also started a Facebook page for the group and I was worried that I'd wake up and I'd only have, I don't know, one person wanting to be on the Facebook page, even though we have quite a few people on the Substack page. Um, but it's already going, uh, you know, it's already flying. So, so the podcast notes for this episode will include the Facebook page, um, uh, uh, URL and, and you can also just look up 7am novelist on Facebook and find us there. Um, okay. And if you have similar uh, issues as our questionnaires, you can talk about that in the chat and you can also offer your own two cents so that we have kind of a hive mind um, way of answering these folks' questions. Okay, here we go. We have two questions. They're both written out. So I'm going to read them out loud. We have one from Dan and we have one from Anne and I did not plan them to rhyme. Okay. So this comes from Dan. He asks, quote, I've heard that in the olden days, agents would respond to queries with either a rejection or a request for sample pages. Then they'd respond to the pages. So the author would have at least a hint about what needed work. These days, the majority of agents I've queries used online forms that require everything to be submitted at once. The query letters, sample pages or chapters, a synopsis, sometimes a one sentence pitch and more. The instructions say explicitly that the agent will not reply at all unless they're interested. So if I get no reply, I get no feedback about what an agent didn't like. Is it the premise, the query letter, the writing, the structure of the story as presented in the synopsis? Is the agent just not interested in this type of story despite my efforts to select compatible agents? How can I fix something if I don't know which part is broken? Okay, I'm gonna hand this over to Nancy first because Nancy 
is a query monster. Um, <laughs> Nancy, why don't you talk about your experience? Do, do you have, I mean, these days agents will just ghost you. You, you, you do never hear from them again. And that happens as well. Um, even if you met them at a conference and it seemed like they wanted to have your child, you know, they're still, <laughs> they will never get back to you as if they never met you and, and never. So yeah, Nancy, what do you think? Um, I, yeah, I'm going to say, Dan, this is a damn good question. And the answer is going to be incredibly disappointing. Um, just to give context, I think I'm the, probably the person here who has queried most recently and, um, most extensively. Uh, which was uh, like three three years ago. But regardless, um, I went through at least 10 months of querying and I think there were 80 agents involved. So I know a lot about agent responses and, um, and you know, the, the sad answer is um, you're, you're not gonna get very much. Um, there were very few agents who, uh, you know, response, uh, probably half or more didn't respond at all. Um, and the ones who responded um, didn't give a whole lot, even the ones who requested my entire manuscript. And there were at least about a dozen of them. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't, it wasn't like they wrote back. They, they maybe gave you a paragraph. And by and large, um, I mean, you know, whether this is their stock line or whether it was true about my manuscript, what they tended to say was, you know, oh, you know, I really liked this. I, you know, I think this has great potential and um, it's just not exactly for me, but I'm sure some other agent will love it and, um, you know, just keep trying. So, um, so that, you know, even the ones who gave me little comments here or there, um, basically they, they didn't really even agree with each other um, when there was a problem. So, so my answer is, um, if you, if you really want uh, a response from an agent, I would force somebody's hand at a place like Manuscript Mart at Grub Street, or um, there are different conferences where you can, you can buy an agent's time basically, and they will read your query letter and they will read your you know first 20 pages or whatever and give you feedback. Um, even at, at those conferences, every so often I've met people who who, who got kind of um, a little, you know, dis slightly disappointing answers. Not that the answers were negative, but that they weren't substantial or helpful enough. I did get a lot of good feedback from those types of situations. And in fact, that's how I ended up finding my agent was through a manuscript mart at Grub Street. But there are, are, are other conferences and pitch conferences that do the same thing. There is... Um, Manuscript Academy, I think it's called online and, and other places where you can submit your query letter and have it um, have it reworked and responded to by uh, somebody with experience, authors uh, or somebody with experience querying. Um, all, all of this, of course, you know, there's there's a fee for that, too. Um, none of this come comes for free. But in terms of, you know, how am I going to know what's good? Um, that's why it's so important to, to form a community, if you can, to go to classes and to have friends read your query letter, comment on it. Um, I had a lot of friends in, in the Novel Incubator program comment on, on my query letter. Um, some of them are even on this, uh, this, this chat today. And um, I think... Uh, you know, in terms of both the manuscript work and in terms of the query, 
that's where you're going to get your your best responses. And if you have enough of them, you'll be able to see the the trends and what people are saying. Yeah, yeah. Henriette, what do you think? I, I, I yes, I, I would add to that what we are what we all know too is that agents. I think the 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 numbers in our profession have made it so that it's actually kind of understandable that agents don't have time to respond and. There's also because they are overwhelmed and they were getting so many queries from so many people every day. Still, you know, a form letter would be nice. But um, but I do think it's so tricky because you end up having to like if you get these kinds of responses, then it put it drives you back to yourself and you have to think, all right, what do I sense is maybe not quite right about this query or about this manuscript? And and I don't know, I think maybe this is just me, but as soon as you think your manuscript is perfect, for about 10 minutes, it is. And then you start to think, after you've sent it out and you've maybe you've even queried, then you start to think, well, wait a minute, what if I did this? What if I did that? And so sometimes I think that the, because in, in the I've done a lot of querying, but it's it's longer ago, I think, than, than Nancy. Um, but I think in that gap between, you know, while you're getting these responses that are not helpful, it does kind of drive you back to yourself to think, what do I have this little tiny ghost of a sense of that maybe this is something I need to pay attention to in the manuscript that it's not 100% perfect because it does take several iterations and um, and I guess the other thing that I would say is I think the best query letters that I've been a part of have been the ones that have been written by someone else for me. <laughs> so, because I think, you know, that you are the worst person to summarize your novel at the end of having written it. Um, and oftentimes it's someone else that who maybe hasn't even read your novel, honestly, but sees your query and is like, all right, here we go. Let me, and can make something really dramatic. Um, and the other thing I just recommended in the chat is I do think listening to the podcast, the shit no one tells you about writing, where they take queries and and analyze them in great detail is really, really helpful. And I don't know how, how hard it is to get yours chosen, like how long is the queue, how many are they picking from, but I think you could learn a lot about making your query the best it could possibly be. Um, by listening to that podcast and that doesn't address the manuscript itself but still at least the query can can get you a response but that's yeah that's not the the questioner's problem yeah yeah Ethan what do you think I mean you're approaching this from the from the nonfiction angle so you're usually working with um book proposals and other sorts of things but do you have any um background or advice in terms of approaching agents in this way and getting feedback yeah, I mean, a couple thoughts. One, I think, is just to underline what Nancy said. I'm amazed that you had the, you know, stick with it, stick with itness to keep sending your work out. You know, for 80, 80 times. Uh, I don't know if that was one at a time or just a, a mass, you know, send out of eighty different queries. But I think, you know, Dan in his in his question doesn't mention how many how many folks he's queried. But if he's if he's only queried five, then I would say that's. Mm -hmm that's not a good sample, right? But if he's queried 20 or 50 or 100, then that's probably getting closer to the right, at least the stories I've heard, you know, uh, in terms of um, other writers who've, you know, some get definitely hit a home run the first time up at bat, as it were, but a lot of them do have to keep querying again and again. It is a matchmaking. I mean, that's part of it too. 
And obviously that might have something to do with just making sure you're doing your due diligence, like picking agents that actually are for sure 100% the kinds of agents that are going to get excited about your project. Um, so that may, I don't know, I can't speak for Dan and his experience. I'm assuming he's done a great job doing his research, but if the, if the querying process is, feels like a randomness, you know, and it doesn't feel well-matched or, or well-tailored to the individual edit, uh, agents, then perhaps that's explaining a little bit of the lack of response. But yeah, what others have said, Henriette and Nancy have said, she, yes, I think agents are, my sense is agents are more overwhelmed than ever with, with folks querying them. And I think there was a time in the industry when every agent would at least get back to you. It may not be a personalized form, but it would be something. And I think a lot yeah. of agents are just like with editors. I mean, I see, I see this a lot with yeah. magazine editors uh, in my program and uh, my own work. You know, you just never hear from a lot of people. And there's a lot of, I think writers are, you know, I think there's a shift that's happening. I don't know if it's because just the ease it is now, the ease there is now to, to submit work. And so it's, I just think there's a volume issue. And I, I kind of feel for the editors and agents out there who have to try to triage the, you know, the fire hose of stuff coming into their inboxes. And, and I can see why they wouldn't. I would hope it's, it's, it's in some ways it's, Unfortunate that the courtesy of the of the sort of tradition is that you don't at least get some kind of even though it's really clear it's a random, uh, you know, form boilerplate because then at least you have an answer. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think that's I think that's it's it's unfortunate. I do I do think that there are some. I love the idea of a, of a conference, if, but that does cost money. The other thing that worked for me, but I was really lucky, is I took a class from the the agent who became my agent, and we made a connection in the classroom. And we just stayed in touch. And she said, well, if you ever get to thinking about this project, which at the time was very poorly conceptualized, you know, we stayed in touch and she just loved my project. So that's, I guess I got lucky, but I think that if you're willing to invest in a little bit of that, that networking stuff, whether it's at a conference um, or one of these live query letter reading things at a conference or, or writing, writing event, or maybe some kind of educational opportunity where you really can connect. I, I do think it's hard to get good free advice from an agent, unless you just have a friend who's willing to, <laughs> who's willing to do that for you. Um, yeah. I, I just wanted to add too that I, we all know that like we have these reactions to the books that we read, the movies that we watch. I believe, maybe I'm naive, but I mean, I do believe the query response that says, I, I admired this, that, and the other thing. It's just not right for me because it might, you know, how many movies have you said like, oh, this is a good movie, but I just don't need to finish it. Um, and I think we we forget maybe because we are seeking something and we're frustrated and we're and we're we're anxious, and we forget that at the other end of that process is a human being who who actually might have the same kinds of responses to artwork that we ourselves have. And sometimes it is difficult to say why, but you just like so I I get the it's not quite right for me can be both a true statement and the sort of cover for this is awful. <laughs> Which, you know, um... I, I, I agree. And, and Michelle was the one who often pointed out that, you know, it, it's like a, it's like a dating relationship. It, there's nothing wrong necessarily with the other person. It's just that it may not be the exact person for you. And given that agents can only take on you know, a, a handful of projects a year, you know, maybe, you know, fewer than, you know, five or, you know, eight, mm. um, they have to be really, they have to just absolutely head over heels in love with it. And that takes, that. that's tricky. 
Yeah. 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 I would. Um, so, I mean, just to remember, you know, the agent that takes you on is has to not only usually they work with several revisions on your manuscript and they edit your manuscript and then they go over the manuscript again and then they're talking about your manuscript over and over and over again. They have to be really excited about the manuscript. Um, so, you know, they have to love the manuscript to such an extent that they won't themselves get tired of it. Mm -hmm. And that's a real love. They have to feel really passionate and feel that something really special is there. Mm -hmm. um, also, we have, I think more and more people are writing today and more and more people are getting their voices out, which is actually a good thing. We have a greater democratization of writing and more people that, that you know, more different kinds of voices that are going out there. So that's a good thing, but it does raise the competition level for all of us, but again, it's yeah. happening for a good reason. So, uh, you know, that's another reason why agents are just getting swamped. Plus they're getting swamped because everything is through email and, um, or through these automatic submission portals that you can do online. I mean, I used to always send everything out to the mail and then I was renting this house on a rural road and I'd have to race across the road and risk my life in order to check <laughs> my post box. And then it would be empty because nothing would be there. And it was sad. And I'd race back <laughs> again. You know, maybe I would try to be hit by a truck then. I never knew. So <laughs> you want to be careful. I remember actually about, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I got a response from a literary magazine. This was the literary magazine. And they're a pretty good literary magazine. It was a torn up piece of paper. It was a portion of a piece of paper. And it said on it, yes. And I wrote back to him. I was like, what is this? And they're like, yes, we want your story. And I, I was so confused. Like how, could you, <laughs> like, this is, it wasn't even a piece of paper that you could use a toilet paper. I mean, it was so small. It was bigger, smaller than your hand. So you just never know what is happening. So some recommendations, I do really recommend the shit no one um, tells you about writing in terms of listening about query letters. They've got two agents on there that dissect query letters and you can submit your own. I also don't know how long the wait is for that, but it will tell you a lot about query letters. Um, a lot of the, the, the issues that I'm hearing in terms of query letters is um, a query letter, um, the summary in the query letter and the query letter is not written as a synopsis. It is written as a book pitch. So you need to be uh, reading back cover copy of books and it has to be pitchy. You have to put your salesperson hat on. You aren't just summarizing, you are selling, okay? You also, another, um, another thing that is a major problem that I'm seeing in query letters is that writers are not specific enough it, with their plots. They use really abstract language like my character is searching for freedom and sense of self. Well, what the hell is that? No one knows what you're talking about. And plus, who isn't looking for freedom and sense of self? So you need to be much more specific in what is the story because otherwise you're just not going to get them excited by it. So, and I think writers are trying to hide too much information, but you need to be very, very specific. The only thing you leave out is what happens very specifically at the very, very end. Okay, because you do want them to be kind of waiting and um, you can you can hint at it, but you usually don't give the very end in terms of uh, the specifics there. So put on your sales hat. And I do really recommend, as Henriette says, have someone else write it for you. Uh, <laughs> novelists are terrible at writing query letters. They are awful at writing query letters. They can't save their lives. I mean, 
they'd be living on the streets if they had to live off, you know, writing query letters. And, you know, guess what? That's not a bad thing. I think telling someone I'm really bad at writing a query letter is probably means that you get a little check in the human category of being like an awesome person because you really don't want to be a good, good at writing query letters. Who wants that? So, but you might have a friend or buddy that's really good at being a salesman. They might not be, you know, a writer, but they can, they can sell. They know what sells um, and they know how to, um, divulge information in a, in a very tight form. Um, and, and so try to, you know, read your query letters to those people. Does it interest them or are you putting them to sleep? Do they not understand what you're even talking about? So a lot of agents too, when they read queries, they're simply confused um, and they don't know what's going on. And if, if the agent is confused instead of excited, then they are not going to request the manuscript. Also, if there is a big disconnect between what you put in the query letter and what they see in those first five pages, then there also is gonna be a, a, this chasm of confusion that you're gonna throw at them. Let's say you you talk all about, I don't know, Dan is, is one of the main characters, but you don't tell them in the query letter that it's a multiple point of view novel. So you start with Sarah and they're like, well, who is Sarah and why am I getting this? That just, in, in a little bit of confusion is probably going to, they're going to probably put it down because again, they're, they are exhausted. Yeah. Um, their kids are screaming at them. They haven't had enough coffee ever. They've had too much of it. Who knows what's going on with them. So any reason that they have to put it down, they're going to use because they don't have enough um, else going on in their life. Um, so get friends to uh, read your queried letters, get friends to, to write them, whoever, hell, if you know a car salesman, have them write your query letter. <laughs> I, I'm only half kidding on that. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, because you really have to put your sales hat on. And, and then in terms of your first five pages, I would not rely on getting feedback from an agent about first five pages. That's something that you can get feedback from your writing group. Mm. Um, and if you say, oh, well, my first five pages aren't really very strong, then you better damn well make them strong. You know, mm -hmm. some people say, well, it's really on page six where it kind of kicks in. Ah, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. You yeah. need to make those first five pages as strong and strong as possible. Mm -hmm. um, even if you wind up putting in a different prologue later when the book is published or whatever, but those first five pages. And so that's what you do work with with a um writing group or other writers um, and getting feedback from them. You know, also the, so I just, I started this Facebook book group. You can also have each other, you know, read each other's queries um, and give feedback with each other's queries or write each other's queries. I think that can be um, um, a, a plus. So it is very difficult. It sucks. Uh, none of this is, is fun, um, but find those car salesmen. <laughs> Yeah. Those queries. Um, okay. I hope that helped. <laughs> Just remember that more people are writing today and more people are getting their voices out. And that's why it's becoming so hard. So it's happening for a good reason. Okay. Our second question, I'm talking a lot today. Our second question is from Anne, not Dan, Anne. And she says, Good morning, everyone. I am a debut memoirist struggling to get back to a 15 year old manuscript that I must finish. My question involves where to begin and how best to conquer the monster 850 word manuscript. Now here we think Anne means either 850,000 words or 850 pages. 
Either way, Anne is, is going to have to really cut down. So she says, perhaps I haven't been ready to begin cutting before now because it's taken me this long to truly make sense of the story, but the operating room is all set up and waiting for the surgeon who has yet to arrive. Help, I am already 70 years old. Thanks for any advice you might have to help me get started with carving the statue out of this enormous chunk of stone. All right, yeah, she was probably gonna need to get that down to 100,000 words or 300 pages. Ethan, what do you think? You've written a memoir. You work with memoirists a lot. How is she, how do you cut mm. down an entire life into a manageable manuscript? Yeah, I mean, that's the question I have for Anne is it doesn't really necessarily sound, again, I don't know how many, you know, what the what the sort of premise of the story that she wants to tell is, but it, it, it kind of sounds like an autobiography. It kind of sounds like a cradle to not quite grave, you know, story, which is maybe why it, number one, it's so long. Mm -hmm. And number two, why maybe um, she seems to be struggling with the the necessary cutting, you know, to really hone this to something. I think the, the statue and, and block of marble is, is a, is a very common metaphor to talk about this, but I love the idea of, of the surgeon um, and the operating room, because I think that's probably what really needs to happen. So so I do think that if, if it, the intention really is a, a memoir, it's really, really important to keep in mind that it has to be a slice of a life and not an entire life, right? So that slice could be a particular period of time from that person's life. So imagine, so Anne says that she's 70, or uh, that they're 70. Maybe, maybe it's um, just the time when Anne was in the Peace Corps during this two-year period, or maybe it's she was a you know competitive wrestler and went to the Olympics, or maybe it's just the time when she was getting over her, you know, recovering from her breast cancer. Uh, or, you know, I don't know what the, again, it's hard to sort of extrapolate from the from the, her question exactly what the memoir is about, but I think it's important to keep an eye on what the story is. And then, you know, obviously that slice could also be less about time. It could be more about theme. In other words, it could be about the theme of loss, or it could be about the theme of embracing one's identity or it could be and so those kinds of memoirs might indeed sort of be highly more selective about certain periods of time um in a life and it might pick and choose from from maybe a whole a whole breadth of a life experience but still there's a frame right there's a there's an angle or a slice or you know choose your metaphor to pull from because i think that's what we're looking for in memoir we're looking for a particular singular story and you'll, you know, it sounds like Anne might have five memoirs in here, right? So it doesn't mean that that other material has to, <laughs> to use the metaphor of the of the cutting room of the of the operating room. You know, she just have to pull the plug on these other parts that she doesn't use, but she can save those for maybe something else, maybe for an essay, maybe for a second memoir. Um, I'm sure that the idea of writing a second memoir is horrifying at this point for Anne because she's struggling with the first one. But I, I do think there's. It's probably the case that yes, it's 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 probably at this point at least the first step would this would be to do some cutting, and to get rid of everything that doesn't belong for this particular theme or this particular slice of the life, and then there's probably going to be an additional phase of of editing, uh, sorry, rewriting, right, of adding, you know, to making sure that what's left on the operating table survives and works and lives and breathes. Um, um, so I'm, I'm extending this metaphor too far, but that's Anne's fault for, for introducing it. <laughs> but thank you, Anne, for the great way of looking at it. So that's what I would I would say. I mean, I think that I think that um, this is hard, right? Because the, it, an early draft an early draft phase, like with a novel, but particularly the memoir, might just be getting the entire life down on on the page, 
because you don't yet know what the story is. And, and, um, and that's important in, a, in an early draft stage. Just get that stuff out of your head or your heart or your stomach or wherever it lives in your body or your brain. <laughs> but, then, but then what do you do with it? Like, how do you find a story? And that's where maybe other readers could come in mind, come in handy, or maybe it's where you just go back and do some, some brainstorming or some outlining or do some free writing on what, what is this story? Um, I have a writer colleague at uh, Grub Street named Doreen Fox who teaches uh, essay and memoir. And he has this great way to think about sort of triaging your manuscript, which which could be for a singular essay or it could be for a longer project. Go through your manuscript and choose three categories, sort of yes, no, maybe, or relevant, sorry, essential, relevant, mm -hmm. and then interesting, but probably not relevant, you know, essentially no. And look at all of the passages you've marked as not relevant. You know, there might be beautiful writing, mm -hmm. cut those. You know, the ones that are essential to the story that you want to tell, keep. And then there's a third, second category, which is somewhere between yes and no. Think about those. They may or may not ultimately belong. But I think if you can, it's hard. It's hard. I think Anil has some tough choices ahead of her. Hmm. Really ch cutting, cutting out whole chapters, cutting out giant passages. Look for those big, big, big cuts. Don't, don't fiddle around in the weeds with the paragraphs and sentences. Just cut the big chunks first. And, hmm. and then make notes for, you know, what you're seeing is, is missing. As you're yeah. going through that, as you have a better idea of what your story is about. So anyway, I think that's my quick, that's not a very quick answer, but that's my top level answer to the question. I'm sure there's more, more to say about it, but yeah. Um, good yeah. luck, Anne. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> um, but she, yeah. she might have five memoirs in, in this mass of pages. That's so right. That's she right. Might, she might be able to use uh, with something else. Henriette, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with with everything that Ethan said. I think it's really instructive, not only to memoir, but to novel as well. And I like how, I mean, I think what we're talking about are methods that can be applied at all sizes, um, the idea of finding, finding your story. And I guess I would come at it from two different um, approaches. One would be a version of the, the thing that you said that Dorian Fox does with the three categories. And um, this might be tiresome in a long long manuscript but it's like highlighting like literally going through your paper printed out pages and highlighting sections sort of as if you're trying to create a heat map of of you know the things that are the hottest and the things that are the coolest and focusing on the hottest things but of course and and, and another thing i'll come back to that's a more practical approach but in order to do that of course you have to have figured out what your story is and either you're going to figure it out as you're doing this heat mapping or categorizing or you're going to figure it out ahead of time so that you can then direct your attention to the manuscript with this particular you know knowing what your your screen what your filter is and for that i think i mean i'm always a believer in this notion that we don't really always know what we're doing and we don't take enough time to sit down and really talk to ourselves and say what am i doing what are you doing and write that down on a piece of paper and it sounds silly and and obvious but i think if maybe if ann were to sit and and sort of talk to herself and say you know what is this story about and then not settle for the immediate answer because she's going to get they're going to get an answer of like my this story is about my life from blah 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 or or the section of her life um but then say okay why why does that interest me and keep pushing until you've gotten to a place where you can't ask another question about it you have arrived at sort of the solid or you know that you can't refine or mine any further and that might then help you go back into the 850 pages or whatever it is and 
get rid of the stuff that doesn't apply because now you're going to know my mixed metaphors it's like we got filters and screens and or and i don't know but but i think it's that you have to we we embark on writing without necessarily having done that kind of mental work because we're doing all kinds of other mental work um but maybe if Anne keeps pushing and pushing and pushing to get to the place of like oh this is why i want to tell the story it's like why do you even want to tell the story what's pushing you and then then you'll come at the point where you you know what you want to filter with and then another thing that i always find very helpful is index cards or old business cards from jobs you no longer hold um just use the backside and go through this long manuscript and write down on each card the thing that's happening sort of scene by scene and then just put them all out in front of you and this could be a herculean task with a manuscript of this length but if you see them all out in front of you sometimes you know disconnected from each other then you can get a sense of like literally this card out this card out <laughs> these five they form a bunch um and that uh, because you're getting away from the printed word might be a helpful way to rejigger yeah. the brain and help you see your work that's so near and dear to you about your life which is so near and dear to you it might help you see it in a more dispassionate way and find the way through yeah nancy what do you think yeah agree with with everything that um henrietta and ethan have said um yeah now that now that Anne's found her storyline um i i would just suggest going through and and getting rid of any tangents basically i have a friend who wrote a memoir who had a fascinating life all sorts of things happen you know people next door owning elephants and you know it just but it, it didn't they didn't all serve the the story that she was trying to tell so you, you've got your story you've got your theme see where the tangents are and see you know there may be whole years you know clumps of years that aren't even included in a memoir of course um but um, yeah, I, I think once she gets it down um, a little bit, then um, it, it, take it to friends, take it to people to read and, and have them help with that process of trying to um, winnow it down some more. Um, and definitely, I mean, I had to cut a lot from, from my novel. I cut tangents, I cut secondary characters who I could have said more about, but um, I didn't cut the characters, but m just more about their lives, but it wasn't in service to the story. So, and one yeah, thing I would add. Sorry, go ahead, Michelle. Go me. ahead. I was going to say um, one thing I would add is that it it ends up feeling like because it's memoir, because of the genre, because it happened to me. Yeah. Then it feels like it has to be in the book, right? With novels, you you novelists are in some ways lucky because you can choose. You can kill a character. You can say, well, the mother character in the end doesn't really exist anymore in this novel because um, it, she's not necessary to the plot. But in your life. You know, unless you're a killer, unless you're, you know, a homicidal maniac, you, your mother character, you can't just kill her. Right. So, again, that may be that that person, you may decide that that person doesn't pertain to your story. But it, it is harder to see, I think, for memoirists or anyone working in nonfiction, it's harder to see the freedom or the option that you can you can have by really narrowing the story and, and making, you know, whole, whole sections of your life or people, you know, or as you said, um, you know, Nancy, interesting things that have happened to you. They seem important because they happened and they're memorable, but that doesn't mean that they belong. And you have to just be super careful at where you're directing that the camera lens of your of your of your story so that we don't really focus on the things that don't that don't matter for that for this story. Right. I say in the chat, Cameron has a very good question, which is does everyone know what it means to find the story? 
And I think that's a really important question. Thank you, Cameron, for asking it. And I'll just say I was talking to someone recently, I can't remember what it was, and talking about the distinction between, and I don't think that these are the right words, but there's a difference between a thing that happened and a thing that has heat like the thing mm. that happened is just is an it's an incident but what you're looking for is something that rises to the level of an event and i think that that becomes story so i don't know if this is maybe these aren't the right terms incident and event maybe they're backwards mm. i'm not yeah. sure but i think like finding the story it's the thing the story has movement a, something that becomes a story is going to have friction in it already and 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 that generates movement i think and so when you're looking at your life and you're thinking like where is there this that's why i thought about the infrared map because you are essentially looking for heat because heat is energy and energy is movement um and that's what you want is the thing that that moves and so if you're looking at your whole life you'll see as we were saying like interesting things that happen but they won't move they, or they, they won't go anywhere. I mean, I'm saying the same things over and again. Um, but but you'll find the thing that has a thematic, a question, a, 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 maybe a question is, is a good way to, to think of it because the question implies the need for an answer. And therefore, again, you have movement. So that, that might be, I don't know if I'm answering Cameron's question. Maybe someone else. Well, it is. It is, it's a very important question. So I always think about, and this is true if you are working on um, historical fiction and you're trying to figure out what year should I cover in this person's life, particularly if your historical fiction is based off of someone's real life. It's true for memoir. And actually being 70 years old, which is also, I do also consider that quite young, um, but is a good vantage point to actually be able to look back and to be able to make some choices. Um, this, if, if the book is actually 850 pages or 850,000 words, she's not gonna be able to do it by cutting sentences, though that is usually what I recommend. Because um, normally uh, writers are so freaked out that their books are so long and I'm like, oh, you'll be able to get rid of you know 50,000 words by cutting out uh, sentences. This, however, I, I wonder, I don't think she should even look at it before she makes some decisions. Um, because it's so big that she might get caught in the mire again of the story. She knows what the story is. She has lived the story. So when we think about, okay, what is the story? Um, I was interviewing Christine Bile. Um, I think it was Christine who said this, um, and she, that interview is going to play at the end of this series. And she was talking about how a poetry teacher that she took a class from once would ask her students to... Uh, look at look at their poems and kind of take their hands across their poems and and figure out where the poem was the hottest mm -hmm. um now what does that actually mean and each each student in the class could probably interpret that for themselves but that probably means where is the energy where is the interest where is the excitement where does the language feel most alive um where where can you you sit at and do more with um, and that is probably what she would be looking for in the manuscript as a whole, even thinking back to the full manuscript, where is it the hottest? And, and Henriette, you basically use very similar language, actually, um, mm -hmm. that. So so where where is that life? Where does that spark? Another thing to think about, and Henriette, you also said this, you said, well, what's most interesting to you? Because you're not going to be able to continue with it and expand 
probably what you do keep because Ethan, I think is right. Oftentimes um, when we find the heart of the story, what the story really is, then we actually need to get rid of all the rest of it and expand what remains. Um, So what is most interesting to you, but also um, depending on, on your publishing goals here or who you want to publish this for, what might be most interesting to others? Um, why would, and this, sometimes we don't want to think of these questions, but why would someone want to read about this part in your life? What, what are you trying to tell them? What is something that they, they don't know? Um, and what, what does this part of the memoir give them that they can't get elsewhere? Um, so that's something to think about. Also, when you're thinking about even again, a novel form, um, trying to choose the part of the person's life where they they something a major event happened that really made them who they are today that that was the major crux or turning point in their life now there might be in a real life several turning points but you might want to think back like what was the major turning point in their life mm. and in your life that made you who you are, in which you changed the most, responded the most, were affected the most, that might be the memoir. Uh, And everything else goes away. Mm -hmm. Or everything else goes into another memoir um, that you save for another time. But most likely, you will want to choose a chunk of 200 pages at the most of what you already have. Um, maybe even only a hundred pages of what you already have, and then and then cut the rest and expand expand from there, and really sink your teeth into that. Um, it's hard. Well, actually, if you've taken a break from this for fifteen years, um, I think that that will give you really good perspective um, and being able to look back, even though it'll be hard to break right again. Okay, we're gonna have to go. I'm talking too much. Everyone, you can find everything we're up to on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. Uh, Nancy, what do you think? Any final words about breaking through your writing obstacles? No, just sit down and write every day. It's really the key. Write every day, like five minutes if you can do it. Mm -hmm. Think about your writing for five minutes. That's writing too. Henriette, what do you think? Put it in your calendar, then you won't, if you're an upholder, especially, then you won't not do it. Yes. Yes. And at what time to do it? Yes. Yeah, I'm just like you choose, but you, and it might be different every day, but like you put it in your calendar as an item that you have to delete if you're going to change your plans. Yes. Ethan, how about you? Uh, similar advice. I'm trying something which is 500 words a day and I have a log where I'm logging this in. And if I don't do my 500 words a day, well, I'm saying five out of seven days of the week, then I have to log in a zero, um, which is painful. Uh, This is an idea I got from the writer Matt Bell, who talks about the difference Mm -hmm. between an outcome goal, which is the big goal, like I want to write my memoir this year, which is a great goal, but that doesn't really break it Mm -hmm. down into steps. And my process goal, which is every day I'm going to write 500 words. So it's good to think about the long term goal, but also really have a concrete process goal that's going to help you get there today you know if that you can see and make yourself make progress on 
And that will start to build its own momentum and you'll actually find yourself getting work done and be excited about that. And that will encourage you to keep going, I think. Yes, smaller goals, attainable goals that still challenge you a little bit anyway. All right, everyone, time to write your 500 words or whatever your goal is for today. I hope you're able to get back at your writing desk and have some fun with it. Good luck and good writing. There isn't nothing here at all.